But you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. We'll be looking at this section today, this morning. But before we begin looking at this passage, I wonder if you've noticed uh, something that I've noticed, and that is that often contemporary concerns and personal desires can sometimes cause the church to mold Jesus into the Messiah that we want Him to be and away from the Messiah that He truly is according to Scripture. Let me say that again. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe it's happened to you or maybe you've observed it, that our contemporary and personal concerns can be so strong that the church sometimes can end up molding Jesus into the Messiah that we want Him to be and away from the Messiah that He truly is according to the Scriptures. I mean, you're probably familiar with some of them, the standard ones in our societies, the different kinds of Jesuses that people create for themselves. I mean, we have the, we have the Christian nation Jesus on the right, and we have the liberation Jesus on the left, and we have the political correct Jesus hanging in midair. Although he seems to be the most popular these days among Christians, seemingly it's more spiritual to be here. Then there's the revivalistic Jesus who can make you feel good now, and again if you need him to. And there's the therapeutic Jesus that's going to heal you and make you feel good someday, maybe. There's the spiritual example Jesus for people that are morally minded, and then there's the tolerant Jesus for the people that are more immorally inclined. And there's the historically bound Jesus for those who just don't want Jesus messing with their life. There's the spirit of Jesus, Jesus, for the extra spiritual, and we have the quotable Jesus for those who are spiritually quaint. We have the managerial Jesus who gives us tips on how to run our church like a business, and then we get the annually reinvented and rediscovered Jesus from Time Magazine, the History Channel, Barnes & Noble, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and we find out that Jesus did such amazing things that we never knew before except saving the world from its sin. But then there are more, too. In the last decade, especially, I've noticed some other ones that have popped up in some church circles. There's Jesus who hates money. And then there's the Jesus who loves money. And then there's the Jesus who ever, all he ever wanted to be was middle class, just like you and me. Then there's the scholarly Jesus. And there's the mystical Jesus. And there's Jesus the action hero. And we have the masculine Jesus and the feminine Jesus, whatever that means these days. And then we have the Jesus who matches a particular theology, or we have the Jesus who avoids theology, or we have the Jesus who just happened to know enough theology to get by. There are so many more, of course. Of course, I mean, Jesus makes a good mascot for the team, a figurehead who commands attention. And Jesus gets co-opted for many causes, appointed without his consent. Usually it has to do with current political situation or issues. It doesn't matter if people co-opting him are Christian or not. You see, we're often too quick to offer our opinion on what Jesus would say or Jesus would do because we want a Savior who will say and do the things that we want said and done rather than finding out from the Scriptures who was Jesus, what did he say, and what did he really do. Our view of Jesus needs to be shaped by the Scriptures, 
not by who we want him to be. But you know, this problem is not unique to our time and to our culture. In Matthew chapter 21, in the section that we're looking at today, the pilgrims from Galilee and the Jerusalemites, they did a similar thing to Jesus in his day. They had their own concerns that they wanted the Messiah to address in a very particular way. And the Jewish religious leaders, they had their ideas of who the Messiah would be too. The scribes and the priests and the Pharisees, they all had their own set of expectations. But the Apostle Matthew knew that many since Jesus' time would be tempted to do the same thing that was originally done. And so he wants to make the events and the theology of Jesus' last days plain to all the church and all the world for all time. So please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 17, and we're going to learn about the real Jesus together this morning. So now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So who is the real Jesus? According to Matthew, he's the Old Testament promised son of David. And the acclamations in verse 9 and in verse 15 to this fact say that it tells us it's the major point of the passage. So what does it mean that he is this promised son of David? Well, we're going to find out as you go through the remainder of the book of Matthew in fact, we're going to be looking at uh, two other sections at the end of Matthew. For Good Friday, we'll be looking at the crucifixion in Matthew 27, and then we'll be looking at the resurrection in Matthew 28 on Easter Sunday. So you can read it on your own. This is a good thing to be doing during Passion Week, is to be spending extra time in prayer and devotion and meditation on the Scriptures. And I would encourage you to simply use the book of Matthew, since we're going to be in that together as a church. But today, as we look at this passage... We rejoice in Jesus the Christ, who is our most worthy king. He wields all power and authority, both now and forevermore. 
And Matthew, you know, wrote this section, not just as some kind of a distant observer or so that we would have the facts straight, but he also wrote it in such a way that it would elicit our praise, that as we read through this passage as those who love and know Jesus Christ, that we ourselves would want to join and hail the King of David and hail him as the one who brought true salvation, as we see in the first section and then in the second, that he established true worship. Jesus brings true salvation and establishes true worship. And when we talk about Palm Sunday, we're, we're really talking about three main ideas. The first is that Jesus entered Jerusalem historically. We're thinking about this particular event that Matthew records for us. But then we're also thinking about the fact that, well, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he ascended on high and was coronated in heaven, and so he reigns from on high as our king now over all things to the benefit of his own glory and the benefit of his church. And then, thirdly, he's going to be returning soon. And when he comes back, he's going to display his glory in open glory to the whole world. These are the three things that we think about, the historical entry where Jesus is reigning now and how he'll return in the future. And so this day is also known as Passion Sunday because it kicks off the week of Passion Week and anticipates the cross and the resurrection at the end of the week. And so we remember even today his great work on that cross. He would be the Redeemer King. And so our Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday series is going to all be from Matthew, as I mentioned so let's take a look at first in our passage today. First, in verses 1 through 11, we hail the King of David who has brought us true salvation. So a little bit of a background before we jump right into Matthew 21. 20 chapters have already expired in the book. But most recently, it's important to realize that the week of Passover had begun in the celebration and that we learn from the gospel according to John that Jesus had already approached Jerusalem a few days earlier and performed one of his greatest miracles, raising Lazarus from the dead. And so people are in a big stir, stir about that. And then he settles into, in the city or the town of Bethany with his friends on the east side of the Mount of Olives. It's near the village of Bethphage that's mentioned here in our text this morning, on the southeast side of the slope of the Mount of Olives. And so the triumphal entry, when Jesus begins it, it would take them up to the crest of the Mount of Olives, 300 feet higher, uh, then the Temple Hill, and then down through the Kidron Valley and into Jerusalem. So the triumphal entry is recorded for us here in verses 1 to 9. So let's take it apart a little bit and look more carefully at it. In verses 1 to 3, again, we read, Now when they, had, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So, again, while Jesus is near Bethphage, he sends these two unnamed disciples, we don't know which two they are, to go fetch this donkey and her colt. Um, and Jesus is planning to ride on a colt into Jerusalem. This is very purposeful. It's an acted parable, if you will, as some have said, of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. So he's putting into action what this prophecies. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, so this is a purposeful display of what Jesus is doing. He's planning all the events of this day. It's not just that it sort of happens. And he wants to make it very well known 
that he is the Messiah, and he is coming to bring salvation. It's his self-disclosure of who he really is. And to those who have the eyes of faith, oh, they'll see it obviously, what Jesus is doing. But you know, only a few are going to understand that he's truly the Messiah as the scriptures have promised and foretold. I mean, even the disciples themselves were told grow in their understanding about what took place that day gradually as Jesus revealed it to them. Jesus would enter Jerusalem as a lowly king, but he would leave Jerusalem when he was raised on high as the royal Messiah. He will have accomplished salvation. He will have begun his reign, and he will return then in his future glory. So Jesus simply instructs his disciples what to say, Uh, And if they get asked about the animals, we don't know if Jesus made arrangements in advance regarding this with the the owners, but he tells his disciples that they would find him as soon as they get into this this village, and when they're questioned, they're just supposed to simply say, the Lord has need of them, and the owners will send the animals away. Now, Mark records that they're also supposed to say, the Lord will return the animals when he's finished. But the point of Matthew is that the events of this episode are sovereignly under Jesus' control. He's the Lord. Jesus calls himself Lord here, and it's fitting at this time in his ministry as he unveils who he is so openly. And so, upon the disciples using Jesus' words, the animals are going to be given, and since it all happened this way, as we will observe, we're supposed to observe, even more importantly, that Jesus really is Lord. He's Lord of the events of his passion. And not only is he Lord of Palm Sunday, He's Lord in his death and resurrection. In the gospel, according to John chapter 10, he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down, and I will take it up again. He's Lord of the whole thing. Well, the story continues then in verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on the colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So in your passage before you, depending on what translation you're looking at, um, these might still be attributed to Jesus, these words here, but most scholars would say these are Matthew's words, his commentary on what's going on here. And Matthew's indicating that the events of this very first Palm Sunday fulfilled the prophet Zechariah and the prophet Isaiah. And so the introductory words in the prophecy of Isaiah 62.11 begin this quotation that then is filled out with the prophecy of Zechariah 9. So in Isaiah 62 and 11 and following it says, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. And in Zechariah 9, that we've read so many times. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth." You see, Jesus and Matthew are announcing the redemption that's coming as well as the coming dominion when Jesus reigns over all the earth. So, the Messiah, 
the Davidic king was entering Jerusalem, not as contemporary expectations had it of nationalistic fervor, but he's coming as the Messiah who brings peace to the world, to Jews and Gentiles alike, as Zechariah 9.10 reports. And this salvation and peace would be spiritual at first. It would be salvation from sin because of the work he would do on his cross and in his resurrection. As Isaiah 62 is quoted above, redemption would be coming from him. Then Jesus will come again to the earth, and he won't be riding a cute colt, but he'll be riding, as the scriptures proclaim, the war horse of conquest and judgment for dominion over his creation. But here he's riding the cult of peace, and it should remind us of King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 1. When he took the throne of David, he rolled the cult into Jerusalem. Well, you see, Jesus is the fulfillment of this. He's the one now who's taking the throne of David. Jesus' self-disclosure of his Davidic messiahship is in direct contrast to the political expectations of his day. He purposefully denied them by riding a colt. And he made it perfectly clear that he and all of these events are in perfect alignment with prophetic predictions. He's the Messiah of peace and salvation to those who believe. And as you read this, do you believe? Do you believe who he said he is? Who he's revealed himself to be? And have you received the salvation from sin and the peace that he's promised? Then we read in verses 6 through 9, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So we read, of course, in verses 6 to 8, that these two disciples did exactly as they were told. And they bring the donkey and, and her colt, prepared for the procession, uh, this latter part of the procession. The disciples make a saddle, if you will, with their garments. The crowd consists of some pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. It consists of some of the Jerusalemites themselves. They've heard a lot about Jesus in these last days, especially that recent, last week, resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And the crowd lines the path with their cloaks as if it's a royal carpet welcoming their king. They cut down branches, palm branches and other branches because they want to welcome their soon-to-be victorious messianic king. And these preparations are honoring to Jesus even though they come from a misguided messianic fervor. He welcomes it. They're bent on some kind of a political liberation and victory over the occupying Romans. But Jesus rides on this colt with its mother alongside, and again, riding this, this, this unridden colt shows that he's the Davidic king of peace. In fact, the gospel writers Mark and Luke make an even more important emphasis about, about this, that he arrives in peace and humility, bringing salvation in the coming week. And so in verse 9, we see that the crowds in front of Jesus and behind him, they keep on proclaiming his messiahship uh, by the title, Son of David, and they're attributing that pilgrimage blessing that comes from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, for God's appointed one, Psalm 118, he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're applying that directly to Jesus Christ, to him uniquely as the Messiah, 
And they use this phrase, Hosanna, which literally means save us now, to hail him as the Davidic king. So all these people are praising, they're thanking, they're blessing God for the Messiah, and they're expecting deliverance, but they were unaware of the true nature of the messianic mission. Because he would be fulfilling the prophecy of the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53 in order to accomplish redemption for his people on the cross. You see, the people were too caught up in their own ideas of who Jesus was to actually find out who he said he was. So then we get to the identification of the Messianic king in verses 10 to 11. This is unique to Matthew, and Matthew does this often in his gospel. So he wants to clarify the theology of the event as we get toward the end. And so we read in verses 9 and 10, or 10 and 11 rather, we read, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so this whole city, of course, is stirred up. You've got this exciting procession. You've got, of course, Lazarus raised from the dead last week. Um, and so you've got rumors spreading like galore, like wildfire. And, the, and these Galileans are, are spreading out um, cloaks for Jesus. And, and people are asking, who is this? And so the crowds answer the, the question. It could be the crowds that are with Jesus, accompanying him, or it could be the crowds in Jerusalem itself. If it's the crowds accompanying Jesus, you have the crowds in Jerusalem asking, well, who is this that's coming into the city? And they're just simply saying by identifying, well, this is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth to Galilee, simply identifying him. But probably many of them understood even more than that. And we're speaking of the prophetic expectation of how the Messiah would fulfill the prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15 that speaks about the prophet who would come. And just as the early church in the book of Acts would attribute this prophecy to Jesus, so we see it here as well. And perhaps that's one reason why Matthew decides to end the telling of this episode, this story, with this sentence, because it emphasizes the fact that Jesus is Messiah, He is both the prophet and He is the king. And if it's the crowds of Jerusalem who are answering their own question, the response would be similarly filled with enthusiasm and amazement that, that this Messiah has arrived, and there's so many different expectations floating around at the time. So why is it important to receive Jesus as the Messiah and King that He is, rather than the Messiah of one's own imagination? What's well, a big deal anyway? Can't we just use Jesus for good causes? Well, think about it this way. So what would happen to this crowd in just a matter of a few days? You see, soon they're going to be very disappointed in Jesus. Because, you know, he didn't meet the expectations that they'd hoped. So they just discard him. Many in this crowd will be disenchanted with Jesus because he's just not that exciting anymore now that he's dead. And life's become too normal again, or too difficult, or too easy. Maybe you've known such people who have these wild, erratic views of who Jesus is and what, what he stands for, but then once they face the fact of who he really is, according to scriptures, they decide they don't want him anymore. Maybe that's you, or maybe that was you at some point. 
So who is Jesus? Well, we learn from the Scriptures today, He's the Lord. He is the Son of David. He is the prophet of Moses. He's the most worthy Savior and the Lord Himself, as prepared by God the Father, and according to the Old Testament Scriptures, He came. And why has He come? For salvation from sin. It's very simple. He didn't come to save us from the common problems of life. And He didn't come to fulfill our causes for good in society. He came to reconcile God and man. came to bring eternal life. He came to establish His kingdom, not anyone else's. That's what He came for. The only kingdom and salvation that there is is the one that Jesus brought, not the one of our imaginations or our efforts. And this has to capture our minds and hearts for true salvation. Then true hope and true help will be available to us, but it doesn't come from an imaginary Jesus who's just another worldly Jesus. See, we know this, of course, and we want to hail the King of David this morning as the one who's brought us true salvation. And as with the people, as Matthew records it, yeah, we want to shout the Hosannas too and rejoice in Jesus Christ, our most worthy King, who wields all power and authority both now and forevermore. And He's going to come again, and He will bring the fullness of His salvation. So first we hail Him as the King of David who brought true salvation from sin, which is what we need. That is the ultimate salvation. And He will bring it in its fullness and every aspect of its dimension of, the, of salvation when He returns. But we also hail the King of David in our passage this morning as the one who established true worship. And so in verses 12 to 17, here we observe right away the prophetic act of Jesus the next day on Monday as the prophet. So again, look at how verse 11 ends, declaring him as the prophet. And the very first thing that Matthew has him doing as he records the events is cleansing the temple and reforming it. So Matthew focuses our attention here on the cleansing of the temple by the Messianic king with his authority, his power, and so he leads straight into the story as a logical extension of his entry, even though it took place on Monday with the story of the cursing of the fig tree as well. And so his point is that the Messianic king and his kingdom are here, and so he immediately institutes religious reform. So in verses 12 to 13, we see him cleansing the temple with his authority, and then in verses 14 to 17, he leaves people in their judgment. And so we read, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it, make it a den of robbers. So Jesus casts these people out. These merchants who are selling sacrificial supplies and the animals, he overturns their tables um, of the money changers. They're collecting also a temple tax and, and charging 11% uh, profit on their currency exchange. People couldn't use coins at the time if they had pagan images and mottos on them, but they could only use a certain type of coinage that would benefit them in this exchange. 
So this whole affair, though, is set up in the Gentile court of the temple, in the outer court, which would have been the solemn place of prayer, but now it's busy with merchandising religion. And the charge of making it a robber's cave covers both offenses, because there are two offenses going on. One is they're misusing the temple. It wasn't supposed to be used that way. And second of all, they're abusing the people. Although, of course, the former is much more important, the misuse of the temple. But the people were probably really excited about the fact that Jesus, in His righteous anger, finally did something about this, especially over that money aspect. And maybe that's why he wasn't apprehended right then and there, because he had the crowd support. But the obvious point and the one of irony here is that these people are doing business in the temple courts, supposedly waiting for the kingdom. And they're unaware that the kingdom is already there with its king. I mean, Jesus has been preaching and ministering for three years now, and then he comes into the temple and he does this, and you still don't believe he's the Messiah? What's wrong with you? It's amazing. And then Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7 here, which looks to the fulfillment of how the Gentiles would be included in the kingdom. So the larger section, Isaiah 56, 6 through 8, says this, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And then, of course, there's a reference as well in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, to the robber's den which in the, in the context of Jeremiah is judging the wickedness of the people and their superstition and the way they're, they're, they, they morph temple religion into syncretism. And Jesus' point, of course, here is that they're living out the heritage of the forefathers again. And that the level of sin back then that led to the exile, it's back at that level again. They're not using the temple for its proper function and therefore it's going to be destroyed just like it was the first time. But now it's going to be permanently destroyed because there are other purposes involved as well. And that is a change in the history of redemption that's coming. You see, Jesus is both judging them and initiating the final form of worship. He would be its object. We would worship Jesus Christ. And the true worshipers are the wor well, those who worship him. Jesus acts as one who possesses authority over the temple and his actions simply prefigure what's going to come. In Matthew 24, he'll speak about the temple buildings and the whole complex and say to them, you see these, don't you? Well, I tell you, there's not going to be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The Romans would do this, fulfilling both of God's purposes with Jesus Christ, judgment and fulfillment. So in our passage, Jesus also fulfills another prophecy, and that's of Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, although there's surely more to come in the fulfillment of this prophecy at His return, but His coming suddenly to His temple and bringing the purification of the refiner's fire. In Malachi 3, it says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi 
and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Again, Jesus did these things to reinstate the purposes of temple worship and to judge evil, but also to begin the purification of Malachi's prophecy. You see, preparations were being made for kingdom worship in the new covenant. When the temple and the sacrificial system would be superseded by Jesus Christ Himself, and all of that is done away with and fulfilled in Him. In fact, I would encourage you to read the whole book of Hebrews. That's the whole point of the book. We have one whole book in the New Testament that covers this topic and makes it abundantly clear what Jesus Christ has done. You see, the Jews and the Gentiles would be united as one people, and the Holy Spirit would dwell amongst them as the people of God. The temple would be destroyed, both in purposes of judgment and for the progress of the history of redemption. Jesus earlier in Matthew is quoted as saying, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Speaking about himself and his kingdom. Well then, after this little statement, the Messianic king leaves in judgment in verses 14 to 17. Again, this section is unique to the gospel according to Matthew. And again, Matthew wants to make a theological statement on top of the story that he's already told us. And so we read then in verses 14 to 17, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And he said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise, and leaving them. He went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. You know, in this part of the gospel according to Matthew, we're coming to, this is the last note of healing in Matthew's gospel, which again, he of course testifies to his truth claims as the Messiah. But another emphasis here is the inclusion of those who have restricted access. I mean, the blind and the lame go in the temple that Jesus healed them. It's like the Gentiles have already been utilized in the prophecy earlier that Matthew's talking about. You see, the members of the Messianic kingdom will have full privileges of worship, as we do now. And so Jesus heals the blind and the lame from their infirmities, and even more so, he heals them from their sorrow of worship that they weren't able to be close to God. The chief priests refers to the families, former chief priests as well, and the scribes, these legal scholars, they're all upset at Jesus' actions. I mean, all of his actions. They didn't like the fact that he cleansed the temple. They didn't like him healing people in the temple. But they're even more upset the fact that these children are now chanting the same acclaim of his Messiahship as the, clouds, as the crowds were yesterday when he entered Jerusalem. And more annoying yet is that the kids don't even understand what they're saying. It's like, you know, ha-ha, Psalm 8, joke is on you guys. I mean, they don't get the psalm. And so the religious and political leaders don't believe he's the Messiah. They, they relate their offense to Jesus. They expect him like a good rabbi to deny the act acclamation that he's the Messiah. 
But instead, with a victorious tone, Jesus agrees with the children, and he rebukes the religious leaders for their ignorance and their unbelief in all that's taken place, and then he quotes Psalm chapter 8, verse 2 to them. They didn't understand the messianic implications of the psalm, but Jesus did, and perfect praise is now offered to silence God's enemies, according to Psalm 8, and especially the enemies of the Messiah. In fact, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 8 on a Sunday morning, so I encourage you to go back and review that. The most astounding aspect of this is that Jesus actually takes the praise of God to himself. Did you notice that? And he allows the children to continue lauding him as they speak the truth about him, and it again reveals the timing and the openness of his messianic disclosure. As you read through the Gospels, you know, Jesus progressively reveals who he is and his true identity. And Matthew wants the truth of this message to stand out to us and to all the world at the end of this episode so that we'll all rejoice and understand that he is the messianic king, the son of God. And finally, Jesus left them. He retires to Bethany for the night, probably with his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And his departure remains an ominous symbol in the story as we read it. It's a symbol of judgment. It's a symbol of rejection. He rejects the leaders. And he leaves those alone in their sin and unbelief, those who reject him, to their own self-condemnation. He often does the same today. But we, as believers in Jesus, we're here to hail the King of David, who's established true worship. The cleansing of the temple wasn't just an act of purification of old covenant worship, but it was itself the establishment of new covenant worship, to worship Jesus as the Lord and Christ. And our worship of Jesus Christ now is the true worship of God, that He has revealed and established is the only true God and the only true worship. Everything else is false. And we worship now in anticipation of worshiping forever in the coming eternal kingdom because we know that Jesus wields all power and authority both now and forever. And so today as we look at Matthew chapter 21, the Apostle Matthew is reminding us, the church, about who the real Jesus is. And he's given us a theology of the Jesus of Palm Sunday and a theology of the Jesus of the temple cleansing in such a manner that we would remain focused on who he really is, the Messianic, Davidic king promised in the Old Testament. We now know better who the real Jesus is, and, and this is how we should think about him, and this is how we should pray to him as Jesus, the son of David, who has brought us a true and full salvation. And that's what we celebrate this week, that his cross he paid the penalty for our sins. His resurrection promised us a full justification. We also think and pray to Jesus as the son of David who's established a true and full worship. We have access and we have acceptance before God because we're clothed in His righteousness. We're not accepted for anything in ourselves. So we're to align our minds and our hearts with the joy of who Jesus Christ is according to the Scriptures. And that's to become more and more a thrilling aspect to us of who Jesus is as His followers and worshipers. We don't want to be sidetracked into worshiping a worldly Jesus 
or a made-up Jesus or try to get Jesus to support our causes. I mean, here's something very specific that I'm putting before you this morning that we can all set ourselves to do this Easter week to purify our own minds and understandings of who Jesus really is, and that's to review this passage and the rest of the book of Matthew. Read it straight through. Finish the book. And look up and prayerfully think through the passages from the Old Testament that are quoted before you. There are six of them in our passage today that we've looked at. And you go back and you look at them, and you look at them in context, and you understand the fullness of what's being referenced. I would encourage you to do that. You know, today we also looked at Palm Sunday and its historical event from Matthew 21. But you know there's still another Palm Sunday that the Bible speaks about that's coming. It's obscure, you may not have noticed it before, but it's in Revelation chapter 7. It speaks about another Palm Sunday when Jesus Christ returns in the final eternal state of things. So we read in Revelation 7, 9, following, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's the Palm Sunday that we're looking forward to celebrating. Let me close this out in prayer. Oh Lord Jesus, we exult in who you are as the eternal Son of God who became man, who suffered and died in our place, removing all the penalty and guilt and shame of our sin, and who lived a perfect life and is granted to us to clothe us in your very own righteousness so that we can stand without fault and have access to a true worship before the God of eternity. We pray. Lord, that you would cause us to rejoice even more in who you are as our most worthy king. We thank you for the glory that you have amassed for yourself in your coming in, your historic, in this historical Palm Sunday, and we look forward to participating on that final Palm Sunday ourselves in your presence when you bring your kingdom in its full glory here on this earth. And we pray these things for your sake. Amen.